friends, I am Ashish Dabari, founder and CEO of Axomize. I have invited Moshe Wardi back. Hey Moshe, so welcome back. Um, let's let's pick up where we left last week. So we had lots of interesting chat about um, LTL, uh, applications of logic and problem solving, your very interesting and informative discussions with John Backus and von Neumann. Uh, loved it. Let me let me take you a bit into the teaching land because you've been teaching for many, many years and formal methods has been close to your heart. Tell us what are the three things that have worked for you and three that didn't when you were teaching the students. You've taught them for so long. Surely you must have students saying, I love formal and some of them saying, I absolutely hate it. <laughs> so... Um... What I've, what I've learned over the years that, uh, and I see it for myself, it's to sit down and listen to a lecture is very, very hard. Okay. Um, actually, it became even more, I discovered it's more acute at these days when I sit at uh, many of lectures I attend is by watching, by just sitting, watching a screen and I fall asleep yeah. much more easily than I fall up. I fall asleep in a real lecture and real lectures. I can't say I never fell asleep, but uh, but maybe also there is a social factor that you are more embarrassed to fall asleep in public. And <laughs> when you sit privately at home and you can video off, you know, yes. put just uh, your still Correct. picture, it's just less embarrassing to fall asleep. But it's just very, very hard to sit and, and concentrate. Think of a typical lecture that is, let's say, 50 minutes. Just to sit, to sit physically, passively and listen is very, very, very hard. Okay. Now, so you can always, you can always, since many of these, I give lots of lectures and it is one way, soliloquitis, I don't know about it. Mm -hmm. But in class, as much as I can, the technique that I try to use is to have a conversation, conversation with students. I've seen once an example when, when I, when I came to Rice and I was more in the lecture mode, somebody told me, go watch this professor, he teaches the Socratic method. And so it was chemistry 101, and I went to attend his lecture. And I was just blown away because in, in, a, in a full class, the guy did not make one imperative sentence, one, one sentence. Everything was a question. He would ask a question, he would ask a question, he would ask a question. One, one after, after the other, after the other. Okay. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty amazing. Okay. So... What you can do is is just have a try to use a class as a conversation with students. Mm. Make it more interactive. So, make it interactive. Now it's a little different because when you talk about uh, you know when when you do chemistry, chemistry is very factual. Mm. You know this molecule and this molecule and this mm. molecule. Mm. When you teach more theoretical stuff, it's not, it doesn't reduce to, to a sequence of facts. You can't quite see those sequence of facts. So you can quite pursue it in the same way, but still you can, I mean, we start, I start the class and what is logic? Mm -hmm. And students don't have a clear answer. What is logic? Correct. Because everybody knows, and thinks they know logic because they, they think they know logic. <laughs> and then we said, well, logic is about, to tell logic is about the truth. What is truth? Ooh, that's a difficult question. What is truth? You know, this goes back to, to, 
the New Testament, there is a famous scene between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, and, and Pilate says, what is truth? And this is a, a very deep philosophical question. What is truth? So we start by talking about that. What is truth? And what's the role of logic when we are searching for the truth? And these are questions that the student, it makes the student think. think yeah. So mm-hmm. I would say is that the, to me, the key technique in teaching is as much as possible, make it interactive. Mm. You're just standing there and and lecturing. It's very hard to get to get the students engaged. So, in your in your uh, experience, do you find when you are teaching the way you do, uh, students are liking this topic of formal methods, or are they? I mean, how do you find like most people latch on to it? They love it, or you have like a halfway house where some people say, "Yeah, we love it, but you know, I would rather not do anything more formal." I think that the way I teach is, is try to combine this idea of, of, of a logic as a language that has precise meaning. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's speaking with precision about the meaning. This is what logic is. Mm-hmm. And I don't really teach us a course on logic. I teach a course on logic in computer science. And we talk about, okay, where are, let's look at where are we using logic and mm-hmm. the two key applications we, we kind of talk about one is relational databases. Mm-hmm because that has been really a great, a success story of declarative programming. Mm-hmm. First of the logic, first of the logic is not the most user friendly, but SQL is a formalization of first of the logic. And uh, so we talked about this is the class, this has been a huge success story today. Relational database are industry of Correct. tens of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the idea of declarative programming. Mm-hmm. Say, say what and not how. Correct. And this is really, I mean, it's kind of the same conversation we had before about how we try to find a high-level way. Description. The more declarative, the better. Yeah. Descriptive, yeah. declarative. And leave it Leave it to, this is, this is, for Neumann was wrong. This is, <laughs> the, 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 at the time, computer, ta- computer time was very, very precious. Correct, okay? correct, correct. They had huge computational problem. You wanted to simulate nuclear bomb. You wanted to compute... Ballistical missile. This was computation that that humans just was way too complicated for humans to do. You just it didn't scale. We use human the word computer. You have to remember until the mid forties, a computer is a person who does computing. Okay, the guy who calculated I forgot his name was an Indian guy. I forgot his name that calculated uh, the height of Mount Everest, and the Mount Everest should be named after him because he came up with the with the numbers based on measurements, he came right. up with the numbers. But Everest was the British boss, so Everest got his name on the on the mountain. But he was actually an Indian computer. His title was chief computer. That's what he was. Wow. Okay. He's the one that computed, and based on measurement, he says, "Wow, we have the tallest mountain." I didn't know that story. And and uh, I'm, I'm I'm unfortunately it's my own Western bias that I that I don't remember the particular I have the name somewhere I'll, <laughs> the, the the name of chief computer wow yeah and so computer was a person until the mid 40s but it didn't scale we could the tasks were too large for humans to compute so when von Neumann was doing this it was it was just too difficult. So what you're saying is because there is there are clear applications in software engineering, especially relational databases, these things are uh, associated with, with things that students can relate to and they're, therefore 
the feeling. I think what you're really saying is you're answering the why question. Why do we teach formal? Why should they learn? I think something that I did uh, think was missing in my early days when I was moving into computer science from electrical engineering, I was always asking, why are, why are we studying first-order logic? And, and my professors were saying, well, because it's nice. I was like, what will I do with all this? You know, um, first-order logic, higher-order logic, sequent calculus, natural deduction, uh, temporal logic. What do you do with all these things? And he went, what is it you want? We're teaching you a degree in master's, you know, you'll get it. I said, yeah, but what, what, what job would I get? So you'll become a postdoc. I said, yeah, yeah, but what will I do being a postdoc? So I think the motivation of what these things are good for are often not addressed, but that's not in your case. You're saying you found... No, no. So I would say generally this is true for much, unfortunately, for not just for logic, but even for other part of theory, we teach them theory, and we say, well, it's, you need to understand the theory. Why? Okay. For example, I would have taught a course on automata theory, focusing on how we can use automata to reason about systems. For example, the fact is that uh, verification is a property of containment. And we have a, a model that describes the system, a model mm -hmm. type of property, and the mm -hmm. containment relationship, that's the verification relationship mm -hmm. that we want to establish. Mm -hmm. But but when we teach a course on automata theory, it's just automata. Mm, correct. You know, here, here is the theory. Everybody agrees. It's beautiful. It's elegant. Put it on the wall and forget about it. One of the things I think when we need to teach theory, we need to show the students what is, what is the relevance of this. And the students want to understand the relevance. I think one of the things sometimes we don't do, even about theory, explain why is it relevant. Correct. Okay. Why is it relevant what, is the very important point. Why? The other thing that students really, I think, get a lot from from getting is history. So the way we teach them the history is just buried away. Okay, here is the theory. Yeah. It's there. It's already been established. Well, how did we get there? This, yeah. We got there because there was human beings of flesh and blood that made progress one at a time. Correct. But but uh, when you when you teach the student logic. And you start telling me about, about Gedel, who was one of the most brilliant mathematicians of the 20th century, but also one of the weirdest ones. Mm. <laughs> he was just, he was weird. He was a weirdo. So, so he was I'm, really weird. So I'm, I'm coming to that yeah. because I, I just want yeah. to come to this one. So I heard your um, talk. I think you've given it uh, multiple times. Um, this is on the topic of machine learning, AI, and logic, generally speaking, and and this particular talk, which is also available on YouTube, and by the way, anyone who's listening to this podcast hasn't heard it, I strongly recommend. Moshe talked about this. This talk is called From Aristotle to iPhone. And I think you just gave it recently as well. Yeah. Uh, amazing talk. And you brought up an interesting conclusion by saying that we've gone from using logics for reasoning, of course, after von Neumann, <laughs> to building computers that use logic for reasoning and also for learning. Right, and yeah. I found this deeply um, thought-provoking. This, this sentence that you know you've come full circle in, in, in some ways, and you know I started my career in logic by applying formal um, to, to model an initial body of knowledge as neural network, and then use machine learning to train the network. And the idea was to extract rules um, that are logical rules. My time it was data logic type rules, so first-order logic with constants. And this was 1999, 2000, and I'm really no expert at this topic, but I loved doing that work because it was quite hot at the time. 
machine learning was not very hot in late 90s, but this was catching up. I, I follow you and I think you're also moving in that direction a lot more by talking about symbolic connectionist systems. What, what are your thoughts on this? I want to hear from you. What do you really think about these evolving body of science, which is combining these two giant fields, you know, machine learning. By the way, I think machine learning was also had roots in logic. Uh, I, I think people only look at the neural network side, but it's a huge... Oh, but neural networks came out, there was an attempt to logic. I mean, if, if you go back to Peter McCullough, it was a paper in logic. Correct. Correct. I mean, part of the question was, what is the logic of the brain? Correct. In fact, you go, you go, back, you go back to Bull. Yeah. And Bull, when he writes his book yes. in, in 1847, hmm. he basically says, I'm trying to understand how does the mind work? He thought, he thought people were logical, which yeah. is weird. I don't know why he thought that way. Most of us know people better than that. But he was, at least we aspire to think logically. Hmm. And he said, well, we, I want to understand it better. So he writes explicitly about the laws of the mind. Hmm. He thought the, lo the laws of logic are the laws of the mind. Right, okay. that's, what, that's what I think and, you mentioned in that and, talk. And then, well, yeah. this is in, in 1847. Almost mm -hmm. 100 years later, Peter McCullough in the early 40s tried to understand, okay, what is the logic of the mind? And they came up with this model of, of neural nets. And in fact, there was, part of it was in one of the waves of, of, of neural nets, there was various waves of, of success and failure. Okay. There was a wave of... The connectionist approach, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is a, a uh, in in psychology. This is how we need to think about the brain as a neural net. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so it's a slightly different type of logic. I mean, people there was nothing in logic that says you have to have. I mean, Aristotle used conjunction and the Stoic used conjunction and disjunction because these are concepts that correspond to to natural language. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we could imagine that we have, in fact, people who, des who, who desire, who think about theories, who talk about circuits, talk about threshold circuits. Mm -hmm. The other type of, to today we understand, and there is fuzzy logic and mm -hmm. real-valued logic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, people that think that logic is just about the zero, one, and, and or, and not, is a, this is a very re a reductionist uh, view of logic, okay? So, I mean, I look at it as, the, as a more holistic way. Mm -hmm. Correct. But but it is clear that there are that even the way that the, the mind works and you know I'm not a, an expert on the brain and people debate and now I see that people are challenging Kahneman if he's completely right but I was roughly speaking we understand that certain things we do in life is is without reasoning that I recognize yeah. that I recognize your face yeah I don't say well he's wearing glasses no, no, and yeah. he, you know I just recognize the face clearly it is what we call fast thinking, okay? Yeah, and that's yeah. a huge a huge part of, of of not human intelligence, but any kind of intelligence, the lizard intelligence yeah. is you recognize image recognition, yeah. okay? I think I, the, the um, people in uh, cognition refer to this as reflexive reasoning. So reflexive kind of reasoning. Yeah. We do it very, very fast, okay? child and, can do this, right? A child knows how to skip over an obstacle, right? One year yeah, old would, yeah, doesn't yeah. need to use logic. And so, so it was appropriate for AI to say, how do we do this? You know, this is not, it's a, what you call human intelligence, but it's part of intelligence because you cannot function. If you look at intelligence is part of the way you need tools to survive. How do we do that? And we are, we have learned, you know, basically that the brain is some kind of a big neural net. 
And we have learned enough about how to construct neural net, how deep they are, how what's the training algorithm, et cetera, et cetera, to do certain tasks very, very well. Okay. Now, um, but we expect we expect children to grow. And one of the things that we expect them to grow is to the, you know, we need they need to start they start reasoning. And there are lots of research on how children start reasoning. Mm-hmm. For example, what is the thing about a theory of mind? Mm-hmm. There's a, there is a cookie experiment, which is there is a jar and there is a cookie in the jar and the mother goes away and you move the, the cookie to another. These are non-transparent jar. And you move the cookie to another jar and the mother come back and you ask, child, which jar will the, will the mother open? Yeah, yeah. And at a certain age, the child points to the jar where the cookie is. But at some, I forgot, maybe at age four or five, the child realized the mother did not did not see that the cookie was moved away. So the mother will, will try to open the original jar because that's what she saw. That is, that's a theory of mind, I call it. When you start thinking, I'm thinking about what you're thinking. And uh, at some point, we start reasoning, okay? And this is what Bull was trying to, to mm. capture. And in some sense, logic says, for, let's forget about the recognition part, mm. we, we encode it as an atomic proposition. Atomic mm. proposition, proposition say it is raining. Mm. How do you know it's raining? Well, yeah. we, this is something else. You, you hear the sound, you, you see the drops, you know, you, you realize it's raining. We start reasoning about it. And clearly, if we want to do artificial intelligence, we have to figure out how these two modes of reasoning, how this Correct. reflexive reasoning. Correct. Correct. And 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 some kind I don't know what to call it logical, but reasoning, higher level reasoning. How do they live together? So they call this reflective reasoning. So they say when we're playing chess, and and you you must know this, right? So in fifties, when Stanford guys, uh, Newey and all, were building expert systems in MIT, they were putting together frameworks for neural networks. And I remember can't uh, remember the name of the author, but this chap at MIT who wrote these papers, elephants don't play chess. And, and there was a huge fight between these two top schools in the world about whether logic will win and, and or neural networks will win. I think now both are actually coming together. I mean, the answer is, the answer is that they are, you know, I mean, it, you know, people have, like to get into fights, but the answer is that, you know, I look at the waves of AI and there was a wave of AI of symbolic reasoning. And clearly we look now when the it was a bit naive. And then there was another way of AI, which is about probabilistic reasoning. Correct. Because the one way we reason about the world is by how likely things are. Likelihood, yeah. And 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 that was very important part of part of the body. And now we have these things about where we just do reflexive reasoning, just just a black box training it, and you know you recognize it, and you can't even say how you recognize it. You know, when when you say, "Oh, this is this," how do you know this? I cannot always explain it. And this was already known in AI, going back to the sick, there was something called Polanyi's paradox. If I ask you if you if you know how to ride bicycle, how do you balance yourself on a bike? You cannot explain it. No, you can't. <laughs> I try once to teach an adult to ride bicycle. And I realized I just don't have the tools. There was I didn't have walk. What do you say? I, all I could say is get on it and ride. That's what I do. <laughs> how do you balance? I couldn't teach, and it turns out it's very, very difficult to teach adults. Children somehow. They're not afraid of, they're less afraid of falling and they, they're willing to experiment. I don't know enough about the biology of why it's so difficult to teach adults to ride a bicycle. But I tried once. It's a long story and I won't get into it. I tried to teach adults to ride a bicycle. I realized then it's very difficult. And partly I could not say, here's what you do. Other than keep yourself balanced. 
So Moshe, and this so, is very so now, yeah. now for me, we'll, instead of fighting about the different schools, mm. each school has its strengths and its weaknesses. And the answer is, you know, can we find a coherent way to combine them? How do we combine reflexive reasoning with reflective reasoning, mm. with probabilistic reasoning? How do they all live together? Actually, One of the things that yeah. became clear to me was that the reductiveness of logic to zero one was a weakness. Correct. Okay, that we need to add some notion of of you know you know we like to, to think of course we think of truth as absolute is an absolute is a true or false. Fuzzy logic Something tried is, to do that, right? So they're trying to say that you know there was this lots of fuzzy sets in in which truth. I don't think people beyond applying it to microcontrollers and, and washing machines and so on. I don't think the computer science people took it seriously. Logicians did not take it seriously. I know that. Logicians <laughs> did not take it seriously. But on the other hand, if you look, for example, at uh, Lofty Zadeh, who passed away just a, a couple of years ago, he is amazingly well-cited. Okay? Find a logician that is as well-cited <laughs> as Lofty Zadeh. So the work did have huge impact. It's a sociological question, you know, partly is that uh, logicians were at a certain level of mathematical precision, especially mathematical logic. They, it became really part of mathematics and you have to, you have to do mathematics there for this to be accepted. And I guess fuzzy logic didn't cut, didn't, didn't fit quite into that cut mold. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there is a way, there is a way, even if you start, for example, uh, with a, with just classical logic, Mm-hmm. Then we understand that the formula is unsatisfiable. It means it has no solutions. And if it is valid, it has only solutions. But in between, it would be what fraction of the truth assignments are satisfying. Mm-hmm. Correct. And, and that's a very simple way of, uh, of to say, okay, how true is this formula? Okay. And if, if the answer is, well, you know, I mean, yes, it could be, it could be false, but the probability is less than you're going to hit by an asteroid. Well, then maybe I can, you know, we, when, you, when you build a bridge, is it 100% sure? Are you 100% sure that it will not collapse? No, you're, I don't know, 99.999. Okay, there is some degree of safetyness. So, so it, we could talk a bit about even classical logic and add, add quantitative. Or mm-hmm. we can say, for example, that a proposition is true with probability half. Correct. What correct. is the probability now that the circuit will output one? Correct, correct. Actually, this is what real life is, to be honest, right? We are le- yeah. we have to deal with these uncertainties. What I find very interesting, and I think I want your view on this, I think about this as being a very exciting field which will have applications in cybersecurity, systems biology. I would even argue in ethics, because if you look at what is happening with all of this data being munched with lots of big giant companies, um, and there's so much semantical information being churned out of, of this, you know. Of course, there is learning happening. They learn our patterns of what uh, sites we watch or what YouTube videos we watch. So they tell us this one to watch. But at behind the scenes, it's not just neural network learning. At, at some point, they're taking logical decisions to say, let me show you this video because this is the one that actually is going to make more sense to you because you've watched five other videos that look like. So I think, I don't know what technologies the Google and the Facebook is using behind the curtains, but it looks to me that that is where we are heading, the synergy of logic and deep neural networks. Um, also, I think in terms of application, you know, not just ethics, you know, like um, 
uh, even in law and things like that, wherever there is approximation and, and noise that you need to overcome. What are your thoughts? I mean, well, partly it goes back to a, a concept that uh, uh, George Schultz just passed away just mm -hmm. very recently. He was a prominent, you know, statesman, and then uh, he was a he was secretary of state. He was a had many government service twenty years, and he spent the last decade of his life at um, at Stanford. And I think he passed hundred. I think he lived more than a hundred, and then he passed away, just passing past hundred. But he he authored a, a an op-ed in one of the newspapers just a few months before he passed away. And he said, what did I learn about, what is the most important thing I learned in my life? Trust is the coin of the realm, he wrote. It's about trust, okay? And we have, to, you know, for example, you know, um, um, Biden just gave this, this, this congressional address yesterday and talked about, you know, will our democracy endure? And one of the issues is for democracy to endure, you need societal trust. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things we have not been talking enough about, we had we have lots of polls that shows eroding trust. And and therefore we need to start talking more about trust. This is what it is about. If you've been to a corporation, I'm sure you must have played at some point the trust game. Have you ever played the trust game? Not really, no. What is it? Tell people. Oh, it's a lovely, it's a lovely game. It has to be some one of these off-site retreats. Right, right. And you stand on a platform, right. and which is about, uh, has to be, you know, maybe a meter and a half high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you, you put a cover on your eyes. Yeah. And then you're supposed to fall backwards. Okay. Which is absolutely terrifying because your, your, your lizard brain tells you you're falling backwards from platform. You're going to hit your head on, on the pavement. You're going to die. Right. Okay. Right. Behind you, 10 people are standing behind you Toward and they catch you. Right. Okay, when you fall down. So yes. you know that you're not going to die. The forebrain knows that the aft brain is terrified. Mm -hmm. And it's an exercise. Many things in life, we, we have to over, you know, we are part of the challenge. The human, the human condition is, as I say, is a colossal fight between the lizard brain and the forebrain. The lizard brain says, eat this, it's good. The forebrain says, don't eat it. It's not good for you. Don't and it's it. on and on and on. You can find so many things. And sometimes one wins, sometimes the other win. Okay. In this case, part of the goal is to teach you to teach you to trust your team. Sometimes in, you just have to say, I trust my team. You cannot ever in every instance, for example, you work on a, on a, you build a software in a team. You establish processes. What you cannot do is go and check individual, everyone. No, no, I don't trust this guy. I'm going to go over every line that he wrote or every line that she wrote, okay? You have to say, we establish processes, okay? So, you know, her code is reviewed by this guy and between the two of them, that's it. I'm not going to review that code again. There will be a tester that will do it. Which you cannot go to say, I trust no one because nothing is achievable. So cooperation, you cannot really accomplish things. If you go with attitude, I don't trust anyone. Mm -hmm. There are people who have this idea, like, no, no, I trust only myself. The answer is that you are very limited in what you can do if you only trust yourself. So we have to really teach people the concept of blind trust. So you're saying basically if you, if, if you reduce these problems of cybersecurity, even systems biology to some extent, I would say, would you say systems biology could also be looked at as a trust problem? Ethics can certainly be. 
Because it's the same. Ethics is, very, ethics is very much European about trust system. Biology, I don't quite see the connection, but mm. maybe I will see if I think more about it. But the point is that a lot of things we do in life, we, we because we trust, okay? So uh, when during my military service, I had to take a, a skydiving course. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to jump from an airplane. It's absolutely terrifying. I would love that. <laughs> it's, it is exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. Okay, but in fact, it does. You have to jump from an airplane. If you've done a roller coaster, okay, what happened roller coaster? Why do kids love roller coaster? Because on one hand, they are scared, but they trust the system. They trust that this is safe. Because if they didn't trust that that the roller coaster is was well engineered, I say I'm going to risk my life here. I'm not. This is too risky. I don't want to do it. And there are people who cannot. There are people who just cannot. Their fear overcomes them, and they cannot trust the system. But the majority of us says, this is licensed, this is well-engineered, somebody calculated the trajectories, we're going to be okay. And then we enjoy the tension between the fear on one hand and the trust that we put in the system. So we say, we, we know that this is, we put the fear, but we put it in a cage. We know that, no, 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 it's fear, I can observe it, I can reflect on it, but I can do that and enjoy the thrill, okay? And, and we kind of do that, we do we engage in something. If we thought... If I really thought when I jump from the airplane that the probability, I know there is some probability that something will happen to me, but I thought the probability is very, very low. That's where probability do come, the probabilities do come in. We take risk. And the question, what kind of risk we're going to take? And this is a concept that now we're talking, you know, we're going to deploy autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be 100% safe. And the car Accidents problems will happen. Binary, they have to make binary decisions at, at a micro level. It's, yeah, but based so on how safe do we want yeah. it to be? I yeah. mean, this is a societal question, and in fact, that there are, there was a a, a a philosopher Johannes Himmelreich, and he says all this discussion about the trolley problem for for autonomous vehicles. He said, and then it's a political decision. We have to make a political decision. Somebody has to tell the AV cars this is the level of risk that that, that you need to tell us that this is not going to happen. More than uh, right now, for example, with with human-driven cars, we have something like I think eight fatalities per billion VMT vehicles mile traveled. Okay, what do we expect? This is what when human drivers, which are imperfect, accident happen. The fatality rate is eight uh, per billion VMT. The accident rate, of course, is much higher. Many of them end, end up like this. How safe do, do we want autonomous vehicle to be? Said it's not a, it's not an ethical question. It's a societal question. We need to tell the, the companies here's the level of safety that you need to be you need to strive for. Okay, there's not going to be nobody think we're going to make any kind of automobile that will be zero zero fatality, zero accidents. Accidents will happen. You know, this, while you were just talking about this, it just crossed my mind in today's times, exactly in in the month that we are living now, and I'm looking at the COVID. Uh, management and the data coming from different countries, it almost feels like it's the same scenario that is unfolding in front of us. There is no real absolute truth here. I mean, there is, of course, you know, distance, test, trace, and isolate. And then you have all these vaccinations, you know, I got mine. And the thing is, we still don't fully understand why some people are reacting so badly. So there is this probabilistic aspect to the biological understanding and unknowns. There is logical annotation of all of this, and we are being told to do this or that, either lockdown or, 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 or economic this or that. 
but actually this is unfolding right in front of us and actually no in no way you could actually solve this problem entirely through logic or entirely through machine learning or testing you know you, you can have an overall view of this well what we are discovering with something that you know i've been partly also uh, one area i've been working in for many years is on on uh, temporal synthesis mm -hmm. and we know that Planning with incomplete information is just very, very hard. Very hard, yes. It, it is much harder than planning with complete information. It is more difficult. And the question is, okay, what do we do? And, and society is really struggling. You know, the experts can tell us with confidence. Not to mention that part of the problem now is that generally discussion of risk are devoid of numbers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We are starting to get some numbers now, for example, on the efficacy of the vaccine. And it's actually very, very good. Yeah. But but think of of what happened now with the with the Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, okay? yeah. They had something like six incidents of blood clots mm. after giving it to like seven million people. This is one in a million mm, chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay? The same thing with suppose, AstraZeneca. Yeah. Suppose <laughs> I mean I would have liked to know. Suppose you take seven million people and you give them nothing. What is the probability that over a period of of I don't know, let's say three months? Yeah. Some of them will develop blood clots. Yeah, one in a million sound actually. I I don't know the numbers, but this really should have been the discussion. Correct. One in a million, we take risk of one in a million, without you know thinking. What is the what is the what is the chance that you're going to get in in a car accident? One in thirty-seven thousand. One in thirty-seven thousand. They were reporting in the UK. Yeah. So so uh, <laughs> you know for I mean for example after nine eleven. People are afraid to, and even now, people are afraid to fly. So they drive sometimes hundreds and hundreds of miles instead of flying. Well, it's most likely, especially after 9-11, where you had no more hijacking, it's, it's, more, it's actually, people have computed, more people probably died in car crashes mm. because of the extra driving. Mm. Then were killed on 9-11. Correct. Or clots okay. develop deep pain thrombosis because sitting in the car. And because <laughs> sitting in the car. So unfortunately, as a society, we are incapable of talking about risk in a quantitative way. Most people are very bad at this. And I've tried to talk to people and about who have uh, who are enter who is what they call now vaccine hesitancy is, is a beautiful euphemism. Vaccine hesitancy is a bit more positive. And I, what I discover is that that and I try to tell them, yeah, they said there is a risk. I said, it's, every time they stick a needle in your arm, there is a risk. I mean, it's it's an invasive procedure. The needle, needle can break, and I'm sure there is some probability that the needle will break. You know, the nurse could have suddenly, the nurse could have a seizure while 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 he or she are sticking the, the needle in my arm. All kind of thing happen. What is the risk level? And... Uh, I asked people, okay, uh, I said, let's play Russian roulette. Will you play Russian roulette for a million dollars? People said, no, 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 I'm not crazy. I said, okay, instead of a, of a gun revolver with, with uh, six position in six chambers, we'll put a thousand chambers. Will you do it? People said, no. I said, how about a million chambers? People said, no, I'm not willing to take any risk. I said, you take risk every time you enter your car. What is the risk that we should be willing to take? And... Unfortunately, we as a society we have not advanced to that level that we talk about no, risk not in really. a quantifiable think, in a quantifiable way. I think risk modeling is done in finance institutions, obviously, for, yeah. for the reasons in the insurance sector. But I, I, I think, think would I, I think there should be a high school 
class risk on risk. Risk modeling. And because yeah. <laughs> risk and risk assessment and risk modeling and risk decision making, because all of us, this one thing we all have to do in life, we have to take certain decisions involve some risk. But we, but but most people do it in a in a in a very, you know. And the answer is, for example, I go to Israel and people say, "Oh, aren't you worried about terrorism?" <laughs> yeah. I tell them, "Not really. I'm yeah. very worried." I said, "I'm afraid to go to Israel, but not because of terrorists." So what are you afraid of? I said, "They drive like maniacs." That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> My biggest risk in Israel is not a terrorist attack, but it's a car accident because they drive very aggressively in Israel. I said, "This is my risk." But unless you put numbers and you teach people to think in terms of numbers, the discussion about risk is always completely emotional. Now they're saying it could be that in some cases, wearing a mask would deprive some people from oxygen and therefore there will be adverse impact. Yeah, but what is the risk? What is, tell me, num give me numbers. Without numbers, it's just scaremongering. So what you're really saying is, if you bring together machine learning, classical logical reasoning, add probability theory and bring some risk assessment either as an input or as an output of this exercise, then we have a high likelihood of being able to build a system that can be closer to how we think and how we operate in the world. And then we can certainly answer questions on cybersecurity better, even biological questions, ethics. And that's that is an exciting world, right? That's an exciting, <laughs> exciting so, piece of so science. So this is <laughs> one of the big focus for me of research now is to try to take logic and quantify this. Yeah. Because because at the end of the day, I think many, many decisions are not absolute. They are, they are relative. But if you don't know some numbers, if you don't have some assessment of okay, how risky something is or yeah. how tra even trustworthy, nothing yeah. is 100% trustworthy. Yeah. Okay. How trustworthy is it? And uh, I mean, there was, for example, I read a nice paper by Anon Shashua, who was, a, was the founder of uh, Mobileye, was a bit ultimately built uh, bought by Intel. Intel yeah. And he said he thinks that because people react emotionally to accidents, he thinks that AVs will have to be a thousand times more, more uh, safer than human driving, a thousand times safer. Not a philosopher would tell you, if it's 10 times safer, go for it. He said, but people will expect it to be a, a thousand times safer because he said, you know, something like, I don't know, 35,000 people get killed in the United States every year. He said, imagine that 3,500 will get killed every year by a accident involving AVs. He said, it's just not going to be acceptable. No. If we reduce it to maybe to 35 people, maybe it will be okay. He said, so that means that we, we, we have to give assurance. We have to give quantitative assurance. And the four is, for example, all this, we think we can establish this by, he, he calculates how many billions of miles we'll have to drive to give experimental assurance that we are a thousand times safer. He said, no way, you have to build models and you have to quantify them. Correct. In order to be able to tell the regulator that this AV is a thousand times safer than, than, than human driver. So I was thinking you started your computer science journey by going for a two week course and using punch cards and programming in Fortran, to then coming back after four years to learn that actually we had terminals and no more punch cards, and people were slowly moving to high-level languages. And then you were a logician for majority of your uh, career. And what you're now telling me is that you're moving into a realm which is more fussified and 
looking at not absolute trust, not the binary classical logic, but actually everything in the middle is of interest. And it's, You're uh, supposed to get wiser as you go older, <laughs> right? So you're learning that there are no absolute truths, there are things in between. But what amazes me, and I think that's where we need to wrap up, I'm yeah. thinking about this six-year-old six boy, young man who hear about computers, and what is this divine, almost divine inspiration that told me, go for it. This is the area. Remember, this is, this is where mainframe, nobody knew about computers, but somehow uh, I was thinking, this is it. This is where I should go. So I have Moshe, no idea. So Moshe, I have no I, idea what was so Moshe, it. Yeah. I, I want to wrap up, and I want to ask you, if you can, give me five tips, and I would like these tips to be for young students, graduate students moving to industry or moving to research. Um, how can, what can they do to have a successful career in computer science? Whatever that successful word means, by the way. So I've read, I've read, you know, a lot of uh, articles you read in, in, in a business magazine, you know, seven people, seven tips, seven things that successful people do yes. every morning, <laughs> yes. you know, to succeed. So I will tell you uh, seven things that I do every morning. Sure. I put up my pants, I brush my teeth, I shave, I eat breakfast, I have my cup of tea, I can go on like that. Yeah. So I, I will tell you, I will share with you one, I will just go for one piece sure. of wisdom. Sure that I think is trivial and profound at the same time. And this is, is my piece of wisdom, I'll show you, is life is not linear. And what I mean by that is, in, if you've done a little optimization, if you're trying to optimize a linear function, you go to the extreme. Depending on the slope, you go up, you go down, you go to the extreme. As soon as you're trying to optimize a quadratic system, well, now you have to find where is the optimum. And we now it's we have, there is a whole bunch of algorithm and Newton method and derivative. Now it's complicated finding the optimum. Life is not linear. The answer to almost all questions is not going to be a simple answer. Okay, for example, you know some uh, exercise, exercise is good. Okay, what does I that mean, mean? How much should I exercise? <laughs> okay, you told me that I should exercise at least half, one half hour a day. The other guy said no, I'll exercise an hour a day. The next guy would say, no, I'll exercise two hours a day. The other guy says, I'm going to quit my job. I'm just going to exercise all day. Okay, I'm going to cut on my sleep. We, we all, it's ridiculous. We all understand it intuitively. But in many other cases, uh, we just go to the, I call it linear fallacy. And you'll hear it in all kinds of, of, of discussion. Okay, uh, clearly we have a, a, a level of, of a student at United States that's completely unreasonable. Okay, and it's a whole big issue, what to do about it. People debate, should we forgive the date, not forgive the date? And the reason is because tuition has gone way, way faster than almost anything else. College tuition has gone way faster. And why is that? What do we do about it? So people say, okay, the solution should be free college. Well, no, 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 no. Maybe, maybe not. Let's talk about, you know, I mean, the point is, you know, one of the things that we know about free things, people don't value things that are free, okay? I've seen, I've talked to people in other countries where, where, where college is free. Mm -hmm. And answer is students take much long, longer to graduate. Correct. Because, because, well, it doesn't cost me anything. Germany of course, the biggest, the biggest cost, yeah, yeah. which they don't take into account, is the opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. They don't have, they're not working for, for, you know, they're not advancing their career because they have not finished college. And so we need to have a nuanced discussion, just like the same way that we said, that logic is not about true and false, but... The truth is somewhere it's sometimes we have to find the fine point where, where what is reasonable, what level of trust is do you want to have? 
It's not 100%. It's not 0%. Let's talk about what makes sense. This is true for many, many problems as well. Okay? Life is not linear. And we, you know, I mean, in, in Eastern philosophy, it's kind of called the, the middle, what's called the middle path. Okay? Finding the middle path. If it's non-linear, then you need to understand that finding the optimum is difficult. Okay? And it's situation-dependent and it's context-dependent. But we keep falling again and again and again. You see, you see people saying, oh, this is like, for example, if scientific publications are too expensive, they'll become inaccessible. So the solution should be, they should be completely free. Maybe, but let's have a nuanced discussion. And this is true, I call, we keep falling for the linear fallacy. So the yeah. same way that I got wiser about logic, logic was linear, zero, you know, true or false. And I said, well, you have to find sometimes the optimum in between. This is true for many, many things as well. And that is actually a fantastic tip, you know, it's like find this optimal middle ground, something that gives you the ability to think and plan and find your own path, basically. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. I find this, yeah. I find two things really striking in your um, in your conversation is one that, you know, you had this heart's calling and you pursued your passion. And I think everybody should follow their passion. And another thing that you mentioned about late Edmund Clark is that being who he was and, and, and the persona that he had, he had the humility to actually accept to you that actually he had a change of mind about something he believed so yeah, passionately. Yeah, yeah, Isn't that yeah, great was... about, about a man who's already considered as one of the greatest? But thank you very much, Moshe, for your time. Appreciate a lot. Uh, I know you're very busy. But I'm sure our listeners are going to savor this for a long time. Um, so thank you very much, Moshe. My pleasure. Be well. Good luck with Axiomize. Thank you. So I hope, guys, you enjoyed today's chat. Do let us know by emailing us at info@axiomize.com, And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And look forward to coming back to you. Mm-hmm.